Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the podcast. Last year, I got a really cool gift. It was a book titled The Whisper on the Night Wind by author Adam Schultz. I had previously read Schultz's book, Alone Against the North, and loved how he seamlessly blended a first-person adventure narrative with history, geography, and local folklore. But The Whisper on the Night Wind was different. Schultz was solving a bit of a mystery. What was the creature of Traverse Spine? Traverse Spine was a small village in Labrador, which was a fur trading post in the early 20th century, but it's now a ghost town. To this day, you'd be hard-pressed to find it on a map. I'd never heard of Traverse Spine, but immediately upon reading about it, it reminded me of Portlock, Alaska, which I covered in a Halloween special in 2021. The story goes, in Traverse Spine, local wildlife biologists and trappers reported finding strange tracks in the woods. Sled dogs went missing and children reported seeing a large animal-like creature appear in and around the edge of the village, lurking amongst the trees. But nobody could identify what it was. A gorilla? Some type of bear? A demon? A yeti or some skinwalker-type witch? Adam Schultz took off into the remote, rugged, and occupied wilderness of Labrador with a companion to try and unearth what haunted and stalked the town of Traverspine. He hoped to unravel the mystery once and for all. And what he experienced was incredible, educational, and downright hair-tingling. Enjoy my chat with Adam. A lot of monikers that I'll, you know, I'll mention off the top in my in my scripted voiceover, but, like, you know, you've got a PhD, you've written four best-selling books, um, you know, you've been dubbed Canada's Indiana Jones. Like, how did this journey start for you? And, and like, were you always an explorer and this passionate writer at heart? Well, not necessarily, no. When I was a kid... All I wanted to do was spend time in the woods. And if you said, like, do you want to be an explorer? I probably would barely have even known what that meant. There wasn't Dora the, the Explorer yet. That was a little after my time. 
Um, so as a kid, I just thought of myself, actually, the term I would have used the most was actually woodsman. Um, that's kind of what was in my imagination as a 10 year old in the forest. I was just sort of, I want to survive in the forest and learn how to live off the land and what mushrooms are safe to eat, which ones are poisonous. How do you make fire without matches? How do you make a shelter, catch fish, um, sleep under the stars, build canoes and paddle them. I was just trying to live in the forest. That was my passion. That's what I loved. I love wild animals. I love trees, all these sorts of things. And I was really lucky. You know, I grew up in rural Canada, so I had a forest right in my backyard. Like literally I walked out the back door or the front door for that matter. There was forest in either direction. And I could go out in the woods and play to my heart's content. And my parents let me do that. My brother and I were always out in the forest. Uh, we used to build canoes with my father and paddle them around on the local rivers and creeks. So when I was a kid, that's what I did. And everything else came later in terms of doing expeditions professionally and writing books. Yeah. And I mean, there's kind of a, I guess, a little bit of a stereotype. I mean, I have a master's degree, not a PhD, but, um, you know, when, you know, you, there is a bit of a stereotype that, you know, academics who write books tend to be kind of boring and you are kind of the antithesis of that. Like all of your books are these super riveting adventures mixed with this really rich folklore and history and, and indigenous culture. Like there's so much in them. And I'm just wondering, like when you were in academia, like was there an aha moment when you were like, Hey, I can take, you know, my interests, um, what I'm studying and blend it all into this kind of adventure historical narrative or like, how did that come about for you? Well, I never even really reflect on that. I'm just lucky that it all came together some way or another. I was always just sort of pursuing my own love of adventure and the outdoors and all the stars sort of aligned. I think when I was a teenager, that's when I started, you know, 18, 19, when I started to think more about how do I monetize my interests and my hobbies? You know, I'm, I'm passionate about adventures in the wilderness and that's what i want to make the basis of my life i want to do these adventures but how can i how can i earn a living so i started to think like well maybe i'll become a park ranger and i remember in ontario anyways in the 10th grade you have a mandatory career studies class where you have to choose a career and i chose park ranger as what i wanted to do with my life because i just knew i want to be outside i want to be in the wilderness that's how i want to make my living and that was kind of where I was thinking when I was a teenager. And I even had a summer job working for the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources as a ranger. Um, but I was always interested in history. I mean, I loved reading books. Every chance I got, I was into Canadian history, folklore, voyageurs, indigenous cultures. I loved all that stuff. I loved legends, myths. So I was a bookworm as well. And spending a lot of time alone in the wilderness really lent itself to being a bookworm. The two went together. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe that wouldn't satisfy me. What else could I do to earn a living, you know, living in the forest? I thought, well, maybe I could become a wildlife biologist. But then when I looked at, you know, wildlife biology, I thought it was eh, a little too dry, uh, maybe not really my interest. So I didn't know. And I, my dream, I guess, by the time I was like 2021 was, well, I guess the ultimate dream would be if you could just make a living writing books um, about adventures and the outdoors and in history and nature. But I didn't know whether or not I'd ever actually be able to do that. Um, so I just sort of kept doing my adventures, expeditions, piecemeal, always on a shoestring budget, doing a little bit of freelance writing here and there. Sometimes I would do a slideshow at like a local library or a school if people wanted to see uh, the kind of adventures and wildlife I was 
photographing, but you know, I was just sort of scraping by um, until until about uh, 29. That's when my first book was published, and I really didn't think anyone would read it. <laughs> I thought, my, like, if it sold 500 copies, that would be like, wow, the height of my ambition. I couldn't possibly dream more than that. But I suppose I was lucky that the book somehow pretty much organically reached an audience and people seem to like it or at least some people and that has been my my profession ever since basically doing adventures and expeditions and through storytelling uh earning my living from them that's incredible uh and your expeditions are epic uh you mentioned that first book which i which i read and i'm assuming you're referring to alone against the north um which is a riveting read like how do you map out or like, how do you, how do you look at something and go like, this is an expedition that I can not only do, but write about, like, is there criteria? Like, how do you go about planning something like that? Well, I do so many projects and so many adventures and expeditions that the vast majority, I don't actually publicize in any way. They'll never really see the light of day. I don't write about them. I take GoPro footage and uh, other footage on those expeditions, but then it literally just sits on like a USB drive or a hard drive and at my house and I never edit it or do anything with it. I have expeditions going back 10 years and I'm like, oh yeah, if I get a free time, maybe on a Saturday, I'll I'll pull out that expedition that I did where I went across the Northwest Territories or that one where I was searching for rattlesnakes and edit all that and maybe share it on YouTube. But I just never really have free time because I'm always coming up with new adventure ideas. Like just last night, um, I had my little notebook because I like to do things old fashioned with a pen and paper rather than on the computer. And I was writing out my expedition ideas for the 2020s for this upcoming decade. And I had like 30 or 40 of them. And I get so excited just planning and thinking ahead to new adventures that it sometimes makes it difficult to come back to actually like sitting down and saying, okay, well, the last 15 expeditions I did, which one's the most interesting, the most exciting that I can maybe uh, write a book about. So I've done all kinds of ones. Like last year I was out in the Rockies. I was retracing David Thompson's route through the Rockies and I was searching for a lake that he had described secondhand in one of his journals, but had never actually laid eyes on, on the summit of the mountain that was connected to a legend. So I did this whole expedition to go find this lake and I found it. Um, but, you know, 15 months later, I still haven't actually done anything with that. It's just the material is sitting there. Um, I'm very lucky in that I have a position at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, so I'll write reports for them, but nobody ever actually reads them, really. They just kind of go on file in Ottawa. And I did, as I mentioned, an expedition on rattlesnakes. I uh, did expeditions on migratory birds, on looking for lost explorers, on archaeological sites, uh, on a whole range, everything I ever dreamed of since I was a kid, you know, all the stuff I filled my head with, my imagination. Now I'm actually lucky enough that I'm getting to live these dreams. But if I do a really big journey or if there's something that I find really you know, burning fascination. I can't get this out of the back of my mind. Those are the ones that I might uh, gravitate towards. So, you know, I really want to, I really want to write about this and turn it into a book. So those relatively few expeditions that I've done have, have been turned into books. I've only really written three books that are about my expeditions. And then I have a fourth book, but that's not about anything I did. That's about, um, historical expeditions from people like Alexander McKenzie, Samuel Hearn, Samuel Duchamplain. So that's kind of how things go. I guess like a lot of other fields, um, I have a, a basically a pool and I narrow that pool of applicants down to maybe the three or four best ones that I've got for a book. And your, uh, your latest book, uh, The Whisper on the Night Wind, which I was just saying to you before we started that I finished a couple nights ago, uh, 
like it focuses around this really mythological place that I'd never heard of, um, Traverse Spine. And I'm wondering, like, before we get into what is or was Traverse Spine, like, how did you a find out about this place? And then B again, because of your all of your adventures, pick this one. This is as your next book project. Well, I mean, as I've already said, I had an intense interest from the youngest age in wilderness and Canadian wilderness. I mean, that was the air I breathe. That was my daily bread. Uh, seven days a week, I was obsessed with anything to do with wilderness from wild mushrooms to folklore to history to survival to canoeing. And I think anyone who's interested in that inevitably sooner or later is going to come across campfire stories, legends of things that go bump in the night of large tracks found in some lonely backwoods pass up in the mountains that no one can explain, you know, stories of Sasquatch, Wendigos, Bigfoot, this sort of thing. And ever since I was a kid, there was a part of my imagination that was absolutely enthralled and fascinated by that. You know, who who isn't, to a certain extent, um, thrilled by these kind of mysteries of the wild? And what really intrigued me as I got a little bit older, as I started to get more into Canadian history, is that, well, you know, a lot of these stories weren't just pop culture phenomenons of mass media of the late 20th century, that some of them had roots going back centuries. And I thought, you know, this is really interesting that you can read diaries or explorers journals from 200 years ago, 300 years ago, and they're describing these same sorts of encounters with unknown creatures, legends, uh, Sasquatch, this sort of thing. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really interesting. You know, if, if these are just legends, why do they have such staying power? Um, and, and how, how do we explain them? So I, I became very intrigued by it. And it was always sort of in the background of, of what I was doing, you know, in Beyond the Trees and Alone Against the North, and even in my book, A History of Canada and Ten Maps, I would find some way somewhere in the book to work in references to, well, cryptozoology or legends or folklore, because I thought, you know, this really gives color um, to the history. It, it helps bring it to life and gives us a new perspective on what it was actually like in 1811 to be David Thompson on snowshoes going through the Athabasca Pass, where it is essentially a place where anything is possible. It's the closest thing that we can get to, you know, going to another planet where you might encounter some crazy, fantastic species that you don't know anything about. You know, to David Thompson in 1811, it was entirely plausible that around the next bend in the river, there might be woolly mammoths or mastodons on the riverbank. Um, so I love talking about this sort of thing in my history books and in my adventure books. And I mean, as you sort of alluded to earlier, in academia, it always astonished me that no one else really wanted to do that. I'd be like, how is it possible that there's been all these academic books written on David Thompson and this aspect of his diaries is almost entirely ignored or overlooked as if it's not really worthy of a serious attention. I'm like, you know, this is the most exciting part in some ways of his uh, diary. So I was always interested in that. But on the other hand, I was like, you know, many of these subjects nowadays in the 21st century, they've been done to death in terms of documentaries, TV shows, books, magazine articles, you name it. The subjects have been exhausted. Um, they've been investigated from every possible perspective, especially Sasquatch or Bigfoot, for lack of a better term. Um, so I had done a lot of original research in the archives on the fur trade, and I had uncovered a lot of records from the 1700s, 1800s on, uh, on, on the well, more or less on those subjects, or at least on the prototypes of them 
from a couple hundred years ago, but I never really thought I would ever publish or write anything about it just because it seemed to me like the subject had been covered so heavily. But then I came across one that was unlike anything I'd ever seen before and from the exact opposite end of the country, not from British Columbia or the Rocky Mountains, but from Labrador of all places. And I mean, Labrador is such a remote and isolated place that I don't even think it crosses most people's minds ever. Like it's tucked away at the end of the continent up in the Northeast there, uh, as lonely a land as you could wish for. And this story that I found from Labrador, it was in a trapper's diary from 100 years ago. Um, it immediately sent chills down my spine. Uh, he talked about encountering some kind of large animal that no one could identify, not even fur trappers who spent their lifetimes in the wilderness. But there was something about the account that had, I don't want to go so far as to say the ring of truth about it, but there was something concrete, something real about it that often seemed to be lacking in other accounts that I would come across where you could say, well, you know, it's very circumstantial or very, very second or third hand or easily dismissed. But this one was different. It had all sorts of fascinating details in it about, you know, dogs that went missing in the night or strange tracks or the apparent targeting of children, which made it even creepier um, than it might otherwise have been. And I guess moreover is that the account wasn't well known at all. Like, you know, it was basically um, had not really been written about at all. It was like, there's nothing on Wikipedia. Like it doesn't really exist in modern pop culture um, to any extent at all. So I was like, you know, this is something new that hasn't been done before. And I think it's a story at the end of the day that's fascinating that people um, would like to hear about. So maybe I'll try to bring it to a wider audience, wider attention, and try to really delve into this, jump into it with two feet, dig through the historical records, actually do an expedition to Labrador um, to try to see if there's anything more there, do more research, and, br and bring this story to life, like a detective story of an old cold case that's been sitting forgotten in some archive in a basement for 50 years and it hasn't been touched, just collecting dust. So I'm going to blow the dust off these files and try to tell this really interesting mystery from the heart of the Canadian wilderness long years ago and what it might have been. So that's kind of how it began and how I ended up writing a book that is a little bit different than any of my other books. I mean, it's still a wilderness adventure. It's still about exploration, but um, it really goes deep into the folklore, the mythology, cryptozoology, and all those subjects. Yeah, it, it really does. Uh, and like I said, it, because there's so many multi multi facets to the way and the subjects that you cover in the book, um, it, it makes it riveting and so engaging. Before we get into your, and obviously I don't want to spoil too much of the book because I want people to go read it because it's it's incredible. But before we get into your journey, um, from my understanding and what I read in the book, like. Trevor Spine was like this really like relatively small, isolated village. Um, and then kind of like Portlock, Alaska, which was um, another uh, village in Alaska that I covered in another podcast. These strange happenings, like you kind of alluded to earlier, start to occur in the community. Some pretty horrific stuff starts to happen and people start seeing what I guess, for lack of a better term, this kind of like beast this beast creature uh, lurking around this village. Can you give, give me some context on, you know, what was Travers Pine like? When did it exist? You know, who would have lived there? And then, you know, maybe we can get into then the mythology surrounding this, this so-called beast that may have inhabited the area. 
Right. So absolutely. So all of the sightings that I uncovered in the historical record are from just one little corner of Labrador. And Labrador is a vast place. I mean, it covers almost 300,000 square kilometers. So you're talking about an immense area of mountains, fjords, tundra, and forest. But all of the encounters that I could find were clustered around just one little place called Traverse Pine. Uh, Now, if you look up Traverse Pine on a map today, you won't find it. It's not on any modern map, but a hundred years ago, it was a little tiny community in Labrador. In fact, by Labrador standards, it was kind of a thriving metropolis. It had four houses at its height, which is a lot for Labrador. Um, it had been founded around the year 1840, like most towns in Canada, as a fur trade post. It was started by the Hudson's Bay Company. The Hudson's Bay Company, at their height in the 1800s, they operated literally hundreds of fur trade posts all across Canada from Vancouver Island to Labrador. But this place was so isolated and so remote, even by the standards of a fur trade post, that it wasn't long before the Hudson's Bay Company actually shut it down. They said it's just not profitable. It's so remote. Hardly any fur trappers ever actually show up here to trade furs. So they they shut it down and closed it. And actually a local French-Canadian trapper um, took it over and tried to keep it going as an independent fur trade post. Um, and it, it did sort of survive and keep going, but it was always going to be one of those remote, far-flung. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Off the beaten track locations. And uh, that's that's what they were doing when these sightings took place um, all around the area. And what made it more intriguing and sort of marked it out as different than the folklore around, say, Sasquatch is that um, the sightings seem to be based around um, just a series of incidents, something with like a very definitive start and end, where over a period of just, you know, several years or winters, uh, people in the area, fur trappers and their families, kept describing seeing some sort of creature. Uh, some sort of creature that was unlike anything they'd seen before. Sometimes it walked on two legs. Sometimes it dropped to all fours. Sometimes they said there was two of them, a larger one and a smaller one. But um, just these creatures, which they described uh, variously as a demon or a devil, which I also thought was interesting that there was sort of a supernatural element to the story uh, in that they specifically referenced it as a demon. Now, the other thing that was intriguing about it and made it totally unlike any sort of Sasquatch uh, account is they described the tracks in great detail and even recorded patterns of the tracks uh, by basically putting paper on the ground over the sand or the snow or the mud and tracing them out. And the track was about 12 inches long, 
But here's where it gets really interesting. It was narrow at the heel. So narrow at the heel, almost like what you would think of as like a dinosaur track, like a T-Rex or a Velociraptor. And at the front, forked into only two toes. So just two toes. So not at all like a like an ape or a primate track, right? So something very weird going on here. And there were other details they recorded. They said, you know, they set bear traps for this creature, whatever it was, or creatures if it was indeed plural. Um, and they either would put like bait in the traps, meat or fish, but the creatures would never go near them. Instead, it would root up rotten logs or rip the bark off trees. Um, their sled dogs, they said, would encounter them in the night and sled dogs were terrified that we get driven into the river, try to escape. So you can picture like a full grown husky or a team of huskies actually jumping into a river in Labrador and trying to swim away from whatever this thing was that they were so scared of. Um, so there were a lot of really creepy, terrifying details in the accounts, which again is quite different than a lot of um, Sasquatch accounts where, you know, the creature is described as relatively benign. And of course, there are exceptions to that. But many of them are just like, yeah, I saw like an eight foot primate run across the road and disappear. But all of these extra details, which were kind of um, alarming, gave this account uh, a unique feel, but yeah, really, really fascinated me. And the other thing that was interesting is the accounts were very detailed. Uh, they weren't like many other cryptozoology accounts where it's very vague, where the person who's recording them is sort of a dubious character who you have to take with a very big grain of uh, salt. These ones were made by medical doctors, uh, medical doctors who would wander Labrador's wilderness providing uh, medical care and antibiotics to those isolated fur trappers and their families. So these were people who were well-educated. Um, they were trained in the scientific method to be careful observers and to write down uh, detailed accounts of what they saw and diagnose them. And none of these people ever expressed any skepticism. They never said, you know, this is a hoax or this is a case of uh, isolation going to people's heads and they're hallucinating. No, they all accepted that there was something real, something in the physical world or in the material world that had emerged there uh, and come out of the wilderness to terrorize this place. Uh, another one of the accounts that had been made was by a wildlife biologist. So someone actually trained to identify wild animals. That wildlife biologist, he tried to come up with some sort of explanation for what he thought it was, which just added to the, to the mystery of it. But uh, much like the others, he was convinced that this was no hoax and that a real uh, creature had actually emerged there um, and had been seen. So it, there was just many elements, uh, many layers to this mystery that made it absolutely fascinating. And I was determined to research it and write a book about it. I don't want to go uh, too deep into all the mythology because, again, I want people to re read the book and not spoil it. But when you talk about these accounts, you know, are these mostly sightings or are they more menacing? Like, are people going missing from this village or people showing up dead? Like, what's the, I guess, the most, uh, you know, macabre kind of outcome of, of this creature being around this village? No. So no human fatalities that were recorded, uh, at least none that I ever uncovered. And I think you can say that with a high degree of confidence, because that would be the sort of thing you would definitely want to write down in your journal. Um, but sled dogs, uh, huskies going missing in the night. So that would be the most gruesome is that, well, apparently there were unexplained uh, disappearances of the dogs, the sled dogs. And in Labrador, I mean, you have to remember, this is over a century ago. So your sled dogs are absolutely vital, right? There's no... There's no cars, there's no snowmobiles, there's no motorboats. And in a place where snow cover lasts from October to May, 
your huskies are the most important thing you own, the most valuable. So to have your dogs disappear in the night um, is is very serious, right? Like that is, that is extremely serious and alarming. Now, the other thing was is that one pattern that did emerge in the accounts is that children did seem to be an especial object of uh, of interest to these creatures. Um, again and again in the accounts, there was an apparent targeting of children, that it would often be a child, uh, a young girl or any young child alone outside the cabin or outside the homestead who would encounter these creatures, uh, whatever they were. Um, and one of the more disturbing aspects of the deta- of the story, which again made it quite different than any Sasquatch story, or at least the majority of them, was that they said that in one of them, the creature actually beckoned to a child. That was the term used, beckoned, as if, you know, it motioned for it to come near. Uh, so cr- quite creepy stuff. And also, yes, a definite element of, of, of menace that, you know, this is not friendly or benign. Um, there's definitely something disturbing going on here. And that was the opinion of the people who actually lived there at the time. As I said, they used the word demon um, to refer to the creatures. So they, you know, they definitely saw it as something that had hostile intentions, something that meant to do them harm. Um, so that, that was about as gruesome as it got. And there, I mean, there are other suggestions. They, one of the more de- interesting details is they said that whatever the creatures were, they actually devoured seal bones whole, um, which they took to mean, you know, this whatever this thing is, it's very large and it's got very powerful jaws because it's eating seal bones. Yeah, I mean, that is that is gruesome and incredibly scary. And here you are doing this research, reading these journal and diary entries, and then you're like, I'm going to go look for this creature. And then you plan an expedition to go into the remote wilderness of Labrador. Um, and you ended up bringing uh, you ended up bringing a companion who, uh, from what I remember, uh, you you'd known at one point, but weren't wasn't weren't that close with um uh, when you went left for the expedition, there there was elements to the book that I I actually found myself laughing quite a bit because it was a bit like a buddy comedy at times. Um, just the dynamic between you and you and Zach, and I'm wondering like how did that come about? Because it seems like you you maybe prefer to do these things on your own, but you ended up taking someone with you this time around. Yes, I mean I'm definitely best known for doing my journeys alone. I mean a few years ago I did a journey alone across Canada's Arctic, which was four thousand kilometers, and it took four months. So that's a lot of solitude uh, for anyone. And I just finished this past summer another solo journey where I canoed from southern Canada on Lake Erie up to the Arctic, and I've done a whole ton of other solo journeys. I mean one of my books even has, well actually two of my books have alone in the title. Um, so it's unusual for me to to actually recruit a partner and say, you know, I want someone to come with me on this expedition. But for this one, there were a couple of circumstances that led me in that direction. The first was just the the time. Um, you know, it was almost the end of the summer, pretty much the first of September by the time I was going to launch the expedition. And at those latitudes in Labrador, the rivers are going to start to freeze up by October. So it doesn't leave a whole lot of time to mount an expedition and carry it out. And I thought, you know, if you have a second person in the canoe, uh, two people can paddle twice as fast, cover twice the ground. So simply from a practical perspective, having two people is an advantage. Uh, You can cover more distance. You can do twice as much. And second of all, because of the unique element of this expedition where it wasn't going to simply be a journey from point A to point B, or it wasn't just going to be about mapping some river, but it was actually a mystery that we were investigating. I thought, you know, two heads are better than one. Having a second uh, pair of eyes, a second perspective 
is definitely going to be valuable. So I wanted to find someone to come with me, but I had a relatively small window of opportunity, a short amount of time to do so. So kind of naturally, I just looked among people I already knew rather than, you know, trying to find someone over the internet or something like that. And uh, I'm from a small town. I looked in my high school yearbook, said, is there anyone I went to high school with who might have a sudden impulse to want to drop everything and set off to Labrador? And uh, I saw this one guy, his name's Zach. And I was like, yeah, that guy, he would probably be the one to do it. Um, didn't really know him that well in school. He was a year ahead of me and I'd never been camping with him before, but I reached out to him, told him, this is what I have in mind. This is what I want to do. I have to be ready to leave by like Tuesday morning. Are you okay with this? Fortunately, he was, and he came with me and he actually turned out to be like uh, an ideal partner. I couldn't say a bad word about him. Um, and he proved very valuable in helping shed light onto this mystery. He had some really good theories about what he thought was going on there a hundred years ago. So yeah, he came with me and, uh, helped me on that expedition a great deal. Uh, yeah. And it seems like the terrain and just the topography, the, the geography of Labrador, I mean, I've been to, to, to Newfoundland, but in the more populated areas, it, and I mean, I know all of your journeys is, is, are difficult in harsh terrain, but I mean, was to you, was there anything unique, you know, about going into the Labrador wilderness and like, was there anything you didn't expect? I mean, you've been on so many of these adventures, were there challenges or something maybe you didn't anticipate, um, coming across? Well, the area of Labrador that we went to specifically is called the the Muley Mountains. And the Muley Mountains are no ordinary mountain range. Uh, they're ancient, almost beyond human conception. I mean, if you think of the Rocky Mountains, they're like less than 100 million years old. Well, the Muley Mountains are like 3 billion years old or even more than 3 billion years old. So to the human mind, like we can barely wrap our, our heads around such an ancient number. Um, and the terrain around them is almost impenetrable. It's all alder thickets, which are like claustrophobic. You can't see more than a few feet in any direction. If you're going to try to use a GPS or a compass, uh, you're just going to trip over deadfall and, and tree roots every two feet. So the only way to navigate practically is by the sun. And it's just very difficult. Like one kilometer of hiking there is like 20 kilometers on a trail. There's no trails, no paths of any kind. So it, it makes the area seem extremely inaccessible. Um, almost like the perfect place for something to remain hidden from the modern world or for a mystery to flourish. Uh, so yeah, it, it's definitely a fascinating landscape. It's an ancient landscape. It's a landscape that's rich in folklore that has bred mysteries for thousands of years since the time of the Vikings, uh, from the Inuit, from the Dene, from, or sorry, from the Anu. Um, so yes, it is absolutely an, a unique, fascinating place even by the standards of canada's wilderness there are uh a lot of anecdotes uh and accounts in the book of i think both you and zach i think it's fair to say being a little freaky out at times you know you're you're in the middle of nowhere literally um there's just the two of you you're often camping in not such ideal spots like you said in between these thickets or in these thickets along a river that you've been paddling on for most of the day um I, there was quite a few instances in the book that I was like, I can feel the fear and, and the tension, um, you know, and, and visualize myself being alone in a tent, uh, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the dark with maybe this creature lurking about. But I'm wondering for you, was there, um, a time when you were most scared or freaked out, um, to the point where you maybe even still think about it today? Because I just, I just can't imagine that you're sitting in this tent, um, reading about all this, uh, creepy folklore and you're not 
uh, maybe feeling a little apprehensive or, or even scared? Yeah, I mean, uh, in some ways, the scariest part of that adventure was not actually anything that happened out in the wilderness, but something that happened afterwards when I uh, looked through some of our uh, our motion-activated footage. Now, I don't want to spoil the book because I tried to write the book in a way that would make it fun for readers to read and make it a sort of uh, sort of a like a, a thriller, a page-turner, or a game of Clue where you're trying to unravel the mystery before you get to the last chapter. So I can't give too much away in terms of what actually happened. But yeah, I mean, the Labrador, the Labrador landscape is quite different than other places in Canada's wild. And there's definitely something about it that seems a little bit otherworldly, a little bit uh, spooky. Um, you just have these windswept ancient boulders and the forest, as I said, is very thick. I mean, it's shadowy, um, it's almost impenetrable in places. I mean, there's forests in Canada and British Columbia, in Ontario and Quebec that you go to, and they look like a fairy tale. Like they're just beautiful. Um, and it feels incredibly serene. And it's like, I just want to lie under a tree here and take a nap and soak in the majesty of this place. But Labrador is not really like that. <laughs> it's more like, wow, this place is kind of like a nightmare. I mean, this is really difficult to get through. This is really rough terrain, rough country, uh, very rugged and uh, foreboding. So it, it is quite different in terms of the atmosphere of the place. And I, I, out of all your adventures, like, I feel like there's a lot of risk. Uh, obviously, you know, you know, you know what you're doing and you know what you're getting into before you go. But has there ever been a point and, you know, in, in one of these expeditions where you're like, I think I got to call it here for whatever reason. I mean, maybe it's, it's too, too dangerous, too unsafe. Like, I'm just curious, like, how do you manage that when you're, especially when you're alone and you're doing these things? Like, are, are you, um, you don't seem like the reckless type. So I'm wondering, like, how do you calculate that risk first reward on these expeditions? Yeah, I mean, I do all these journeys that are like thousands of kilometers long solo in the wilderness, but I really don't think of myself as a, uh, daredevil or an adrenaline junkie quite the opposite i don't like taking any unnecessary risks and maybe that's the secret to success is that i'm always trying to err on the side of caution always trying to think like what's the next step what am i going to do here you know analyzing this river what's going to happen up there in those whitewater rapids i think i can run this part but on the left side there there's a big ledge there's a whirlpool there's an eddy so i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to gamble here i think i'm going to take the long way around i'm going to portage or I'm going to actually use my rope and line the canoe where I'm going to climb on the rocks and put the canoe down in the water. So I'm always trying to be cautious, think things through. And I think that's the key um, on any of these kind of expeditions in remote places, especially if you're going alone or even if you're just going with one other person. Um, many people would say that that's actually already a high risk. <laughs> There's a sort of school of thought um, among wilderness travelers that says, you know, you really should have a group of at least six people or eight people to be perfectly safe so you can handle any contingency. A lot of people would say, you know, if you have only one canoe, that's really not much better off because if your canoe is destroyed, something happens to it. If it's trapped in a, in a current or rapids, gets over a waterfall, um, you're stranded. You know, you've, you've lost everything that was in that canoe. But I try to be careful. And I always say, like, if you think things through, um, you should be able to get out of almost any scenario. Like most bad things happen because people are being reckless or impatient. So I try to be careful, try to plan out my next move before it happens. And I always use the mantra, um, slow and steady wins the race, right? That's what I tell myself all the time when I'm out in the wild, right? Don't be, don't be too hasty. Let's take it, take it slow. Think this out, 
everything will be fine, right? You got to you got to visualize where you put each step um, because if you take one wrong step and that boulder comes down the cliff and pins you, that could be very bad very quick um, or anything of that sort, right? I mean, I remember one time I was just on a solo canoe trip in Ontario and I almost put my foot down right in a bee nest um, that was like in the ground. And I'm like, wow, that would have been really bad in the middle of nowhere. No one knows where I am if I had done that. But that's why I say you, you look where you put your foot down every single time. So I saw the bee nest <laughs> and just walked around it and perfectly fine, right? No, no danger. Um, you just take your time like that. So that was kind of my, my mentality, uh, on all of these adventures. Yeah. I'm very methodical and it makes sense, uh, given these grandiose adventures that you're doing. Well, I just want to say like, Adam, thank you for doing this with me. Uh, this was definitely a treat. Uh, like I said, I've, read two of your books and I want to read the other two. And, uh, I just, I'm enthralled by with, you know, who you are as a person and, and what you write about in your adventures. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to reading your next book when it, when it comes out. And, uh, maybe if there's another mystery to unravel one day, we can, uh, we can have you back on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. His book, the whisper on the night wind is a gripping read. And if you like adventure narratives mixed with history, local folklore, and hints of the unknown, I highly encourage you to check out his book. You can find it online on Amazon or at your local bookstore. If you enjoyed this episode and want to show appreciation, you can buy me a coffee at the link in the description. If you want to support the podcast monthly, you can head over to my Patreon. There's also a link in the description. For $5 a month, you get ad and sponsor-free episodes, exclusive content, and early access to all new episodes of the podcast. I'll also post monthly updates on what's to come, so you know what I have in the works and what to expect. Thanks for listening to the Missing and Unexplained podcast.